Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, on a Friday, I was married 23 years. So yay, my face. And this time you can clap for my wife because she's the one who deserves the clapping. Um, not me for those 23 years. But those of you who've been around for a while know that uh, it was kind of rocky in our dating life. And, um, well, let's see. Uh, she broke up with me when we decided to go to college. And uh, she broke up with me. She was going to Chicago and I was going to ASU in, in Phoenix. So uh, she broke up. And, and the reason that she broke up with me is because really she was my everything. And I really had kind of made a god out of her. I mean, there were some reasons that she broke up with me that were her fault. But a lot of them were my fault. And as I reflect on that, that relationship, um, Jeremiah 29, uh, 13 and 14 comes to mind. So I want to read that to you as a reference point for, for our talk tonight. So Jeremiah is an ancient prophet. Uh, he lived at the same time as Daniel, who we're going to talk about, or, or around that time anyway. And he wrote to the people who were in exile who had been taken to Babylon. And he writes these words in verse 13 of chapter 29 and verse 14. He says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, it might have been a small exile, but for me, my wife or my girlfriend breaking up with me was a form of exile, right? And uh, the reason that she broke up with me is really because I was searching and seeking her, not searching and seeking God. Now, we're in Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel uh, is an interesting story. I mean, we, we most of us know, those of us who have been here for a while, know kind of the narrative so far. But if you grew up in the church, you know that the first six chapters are kind of the fun, adventurous chapters. And if you've been, if you're an older person like me and you grew up in the church, then you played felt lord, you know, Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery uh, furnace. Like, you you know those stories well. They're the adventure stories. Um, if you don't, you might know about Daniel and the lion's den. According to Mark, in one of his sermons, it must be like the, the number four most popular um, story in the Bible. Of course, he left Jesus out in the top three, so I'm not quite sure about how that all works. But it's a popular story, right? It's a popular story, um, and definitely on Mark's list. But once you go from chapter 1 to 6, I mean, after that narrative and all those cool stories, you hit chapter 7, and chapter 7 is kind of weird because it opens up with a vision, and it goes back in time to right after Nebuchadnezzar, who's the first king, has, has passed away, and, and now a new king has arrived, and Daniel has this vision of these four beasts. And they're not fun, cuddly beasts. They're crazy, horrible beasts that have been mixed with different animals. Right? So we had a lion with wings, and... There's a bear propped up on its side, and there's a leopard, and then there's just a beast. Um, and then, and, and those things we learned, and that they represent power. 
And they represent nations, but they also represent kind of the evil behind those powers, the forces, the things that are destructive and that devour things, right? Well, Daniel 7 also talks about how in the midst of these beasts that are going to devour the world and are in the process of devouring the world, God is victorious. Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God and judging things, and then you even see Jesus, right? So, so you've got this crazy chapter where, we're, where there's these abstract monsters that we're not quite sure exactly who they are, um, but we know that Jesus is victorious. We know that Jesus is victorious. Now, one of the things that I told you last week that you should kind of hold on to is that it's not just that these beasts represent nations and the powers behind these nations, but they also probably represent you, right? You are a beast. And then there are lots of beasts around you. And I said, there's a way to identify a beast. It's a, it's a fail-proof way, and it comes out of this prophet by the name of Micah. Micah speaks some words of God, and he's, he's again another guy who lived a long time ago, part of Israel, writing to Israel, speaking God's words to Israel, and this is what he says. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So the way you identify a monster, the way you identify a beast is pretty simple. A beast distorts justice, a beast distorts mercy, and a beast is arrogant and draws people away from God. Right? So the beasts can be, you know, heads of state, and the beasts, like I said last week, can be Bronwyn. Right? We, we, we have, the, those are, there are two, two options, two possibilities, right? When those things are happening, you can see that in yourself. So that's kind of the beginning of what we would call apocalyptic or revelatory, um, the revelatory or apocalyptic section of Daniel, chapter 7 to chapter 12. Now, apocalyptic or revel, revelation, that kind of, of language and that kind of writing is not to tell you necessarily how exactly everything is going to be, but to pull back the curtain just a little bit and to give you a look into how things are operating. So in chapter 7, we pull back the curtain. We say, oh, there are all these powers, and they're real powerful, and they devour things. But then you get to see the kingdom of God in, in the throne room of God, and you're like, oh, God's got this. Like, it's going to be okay. Let me just quick ask a non-sermon question. Are people hot? Somebody, somebody turn the fan on, and you can actually turn these heaters off or turn the air conditioning on them. Uh, you know, it's just distracting when more and more people are, like, making their own fans. So I figured I'd just, uh, no, it's, I'm hot because I decided to act fancy today and wear this jacket. Of course, somebody back there is matching me. Thank you, Oliver. That's good. Not a problem. All right, so we get to chapter 8, though, and chapter 8 is, is a fun chapter. You heard the first part of it read, but um, I'm going to go ahead and read some of it to you because it's, it's important that we kind of go over chapter 8 and, and make notes about its, uh, its difference between uh, uh, next to chapter 7. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, and in the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, this is important. 
the last vision had crazy beasts and we were in the throne room of God. This one is a vision in a place that whoever's listening is like, oh yeah, we went on vacation there. Like, I know where that is. Like, it, and the reason that it's important is Daniel, I mean, in relaying this vision, God is saying, this is something that's going to actually happen and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen on earth. And, it's, and we can kind of track this. It's, it's not something that, that's it's behind the veil so much, though there is some behind the veil stuff here. It, this is real life events are going to happen. And so this vision is happening from a real life place, not in, and up into the, in the, the kingdom or the, the kingdom of heaven. So I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So what we're going to see is what I, a sta- three stages of power being laid out for Daniel by God, and what three stages of unbridled power looks like. Like, so in some ways, what we're going to see is the evolution of how uh, nations kind of build on themselves until they self-destruct and, con- and go into conflict with God. And, and so and when you notice here that the, the beast, the first beast, the ram, is not a distorted animal. So an, an undistorted animal, it just means it's a nation, okay? And so we have this ram. And this ram conquers a whole bunch of things, and it does whatever it pleases. Right? So the first part of power, the way it all begins, is that power sweeps out over us, and it does what it wants. Right? It does what it wants. Verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram, and I had seen standing beside the canal, and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. All right, so first stage, power does what it pleases, people are impacted. Stage two, we get this goat. Now we'll just pause here for a second because I don't know, like I'm not a farmer, so I, I read this, but, but goats and rams, if they fight, the goat will always lose because apparently goats get up on their hind legs to fight first and rams never get on their hind legs. So if the two were to fight, the ram would just, you know, ram the goat. So anybody looking at this who understands this would be like, oh, wait, this is, this is important and odd. Um, but we have this goat, and it's interesting because the goat is a little different. The power, the violence of power is upped here. Now, it's not just power doing what it pleases. Power viciously attacks, right? It's furious and destroys and tramples the ram, right? So there's this, like, intensity. So power now has moved from just doing what it pleases to trampling on whatever it sees and destroying whatever power it encounters. 
right? So we have this, these nations conflicting with each other, and you see it escalating, right? Now verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. The truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speak and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. So, you got power stage one, does whatever pleases. Power stage two, violent. Power stage three, it decides to confront God and God's people. So it begins to, it's gone to the place, the power structure has gone to the place where it believes that it is God, or the individual is God, and it will now challenge God and begin to challenge God's people and not allow them to worship God, but to take that worship away and try to get it to be centered on the person or system of power. So you watch this, and this is a cycle of power in our world. If you look through history, you can watch this cycle happen over and over again. Now, why does Daniel need to see this vision? Why is the previous vision important? Why are any visions important like this? Well, first I think we need to understand something that we've been hearing over and over again in this book is that Daniel is someone who lives in exile. And when you have lived in exile, that means that everything that is you has been stripped away and power is consistently dominating you and trying to define you and tell you who's in charge and the way you should be. Even as Daniel had raised up to be like the third most powerful person, what happens to him? He gets thrown in lion's den. Like power is constantly trying to destroy, right? And so someone in exile needs revelation. Well, here's the thing. I mean, because you need it for encouragement. But here's the thing. You and I, as followers of Jesus, on the other side of the cross, have something in common with Daniel. That is, that you and I are exiles. If we go to 1 Peter, Peter, we, we all know him. He's the, the, the apostle that, that Jesus said he was going to build his church on. He's the rock. And Peter writes a letter to us and to all of the churches of his time. And he says, and he opens it like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, that means God's children, strangers in the world. Strangers in the world. Other translations say sojourners. You could, and translate it exiles. People who don't belong where you are. People you who don't belong where you are. Well, why do you need this vision of the destructiveness of power? Well, here's one argument for you that I want to just put forward. 
is that the reason you need this vision is that it is so easy to be seduced by power. And it is so easy to get comfortable in exile. And it is so easy to value what power can offer you, what the culture around you can give you. Right? It's so easy because power is seductive because it, because it fixes something. So if we go back to the earlier statement um, in Jeremiah that if we seek God with all of our heart, that we'll be found by God, when you, then you kind of link my story about my wife, you can understand something. That the reason that I wanted to seek and search out my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, to make her my wife, is to consume and drink her, her to make, to, for me, to make me feel powerful. And, and, and it was my identity. The very essence of who I was was her, right? I had gotten some level comfortable in exile. But that doesn't make for a very good marriage, I'll guarantee you that. That's not a good foundation. We're not going to start there, right? So, so why the vision? Well, you and I need to be aware Daniel needs to be aware of power and its seductive nature. Now, we'll certainly talk more about that, but we got to get to the exciting part of Daniel because here's the thing in Daniel chapter 8. This is a very interesting chapter because nowhere in the Bible is there a chapter like this. This is a chapter where it says A will and B equals C. It's very specific. It tells you exactly what the vision is, tells you how it's going to happen, and it happens. Right? It's kind of like me saying, tomorrow Daniel is going to go to work, and then he's going to get on a call, and he's going to arrive at that call, and they're going to serve him pizza. And he gets there, and they serve him pizza, and he's like, oh my goodness, Eric's a prophet. Tell me if I'm a prophet. Um, this is how exact this works out. So, Let's listen to the interpretation, and we'll kind of walk through it a little bit. Okay. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood the one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai Canal calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So this is the first time Gabriel ever appears in the Bible, and he's revealing a dream or giving the interpretation. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision, that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Okay. So let's... Let's just look quickly at something in, in the way that, that Daniel is moving in to kind of affirm all of this. So if you can go back to chapter 2, you remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had a 
dream. And that dream was of a statue. And the statue had a gold head. And we all found out that the gold head was Babylon. And then it had a chest kind of, of silver. And then it had you know, a, a kind of a, a waist of bronze. And then it was iron with clay, right? And so we kind of made this assumption, and, and most people do, that, that the silver was the, Mer- the Medes and the Persians, and that the, the bronze there um, was the Greeks, right? And if you go to chapter 7 and you look at these distorted beasts, you realize that the lion with wings, that's the symbol for Babylon. So you, you, probably, you can say, okay, so this is sort of still moving along. So the bear, who happens to be propped up on his side, the reason he's propped up on his side is the Medes and the Persians, were not equal. The Persians grew up later and dominated the Medes, and the Medes were kind of, in their alliance, kind of a minor player. Right? So that's why the ram has lopsided horns. One horn is bigger than the other. Right? So we, we can kind of see how this sort of flows through. But finally, what, what God tells Daniel is, I showed you the ram, and the ram is the Medes and the Persians. Right? Well, Daniel hasn't, he, the Medes and the Persians haven't shown up yet. He's still in Babylon. He's still in the first stage, right? So God says to Daniel, here's the first thing. The Medes and the Persians are going to show up. Oh, guess what? After that, the Greeks are going to show up. The Greeks. Who are the Greeks? Well, we've got this long horn. Well, who was in charge of the Greeks? Well, Alexander the Great was in charge of the Greeks, right? And what did he do? Eight years of campaigning. And and when he campaigned in those eight years, he conquered most of the known world and he brought Greek to all of the known world. So that's how the gospel eventually spreads is because Koinonia Greek was common for everybody. And so as the gospel went forward, Alexander the Great's the one who kind of set it for that, right? So the horn's broken off. It's most likely Alexander the Great because then as soon as he dies, there are four horns that come back up, well, there are four generals that took over and ruled the Greek Empire. Right? So there's another little interesting story that comes out of Josephus in all of this that's really fascinating, and that is that when this all was kind of taking place, the rabbis, the priests, they knew about it. They read Daniel. And so as Alexander Great is going along, he raises Gaza, and he's headed basically for Jerusalem, and this priest has this dream that he should go out and all his vestments and and he should go meet Alexander the Great. And he does. He goes the next day and meets Alexander the Great. And he opens up Daniel. And he says, look, you're the, the horn on the goat. And he's like, oh, that's great. And he doesn't raise Jerusalem. In fact, legend has it, and Josephus says it, and historians who read Josephus, they like to kind of cherry pick him for whatever they want to prove in history. Um, and Christians do this, and um, secular historians do this, but there's a lot of criticism of this particular text because it seems a little fanciful, like this couldn't have possibly happened, but he apparently goes and worships God and then goes on. He does conquer all of you know that area, but he doesn't raise Jerusalem. Right? So this is the section. We know exactly what happens. Daniel's given a vision. We know that then the Persians later come and conquer and then we know the Greeks come and conquer, and then we know Alexander the Great shows up, and then we know his four generals rule things. The next part gets a little trickier. So, in the latter part of their reign, when rebels of, well, did I, did I'm in the right spot. 
I lost my place. Yes, I'm good. Okay, in the latter part of their reign, when the rebels have become completely wicked and stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will come very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy them and take his stand against the prince of princes. And yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the morning that was given to you, this happened to me this morning, sticky paper, is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by this vision. It was beyond understanding. So, all of a sudden, the next part is, is that this guy rises up, and he is he, he's more powerful than the other four generals, and he, but he comes out of those four generals, and he is extremely arrogant, and he is extremely powerful, and, and, and there's all this intrigue and all that interesting stuff, and there are things and words in there like, you know, the desolation of yada yada and that kind of stuff. And he sets himself up against the prince, sets himself up against God, right? He does all of these things. So the question is, who is he? Well, a lot of people think that he is Antioch the fourth of Epiphanes, and this is why they think this, okay? This guy, I don't remember his first title, but it's basically God. So it was God, you know, Antiochus, the fourth, Epiphanes, which means the glorious one, okay? And so he was horrible and wicked, and when he went off to conquer Egypt and to fight in Egypt, the Jews heard that he might have died, and so they threw a big party. And he got very angry, and he went back, and he slaughtered 100,000 of them. He slaughtered a pig on their altar. He put a Zeus, a statue of Zeus, and we call this the abomination of desolation, like he stuck it on their thing, and he quit sacrifices for almost like six years, like and persecuted the Jewish people. And it says in the text that he would die, or whoever this person is, would die not by human hands. Well, he dies a horrific death of some bowel disease, right? And that's how he dies. So a lot of people think that it's Antiochus IV of Epiphanes. Like, that's who it is. But others read this and say, oh, yeah, we know the first section, but the second section either is about Antiochus or it's also about a time to come when another figure will rise and will do this exact same thing and when Jesus returns. Here's the thing. We don't know any of this. What we do know is really clear. The ram represents the Persians and the Medes. The goat represents the Greeks. We might know that the, uh, the horn is Alexander the Great and the other four are the generals. We might know that. But we don't know that perfectly. But we do know those two specific things. Here's the danger in trying to figure out all these things. See, a while back, a long time ago, someone took a look at that 2,300 morning and evening and said each one of these represents a year. There's some texts about this in Revelation, and there's some texts about this in Numbers. Well, I figured it out. Jesus is coming back in 1844. Jesus did not come back in 1844. But out of it, but it, if you know anything about church history, it rocked Christianity for a while. And out of that came the Jehovah Witnesses. And out of that came the Seventh-day Adventists. 
And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with them, but Christianity began to even splinter more. And those two faiths formed out of doubt and disappointment and, and you know, a, a, a fear of getting things wrong. So this is the thing, when we interpret prophecy, it's very, very dangerous for us to say this is the way it's going to happen unless we're able to say the goat is Greece and the ram is the Persians and the Medes, right? So there's your, there's your exact prophecy. So why then have this? Why then have this text? Why, why is it important? What do you and I need to do with it? Well, well there's a couple things that I want us to look at. The first one is that at the beginning of Daniel's vision, or his interpretation of the vision in verse 15, it says, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, so understand, and then verse 5, it says, as I was thinking about this. There's a couple things that Daniel is doing as he's engaging in this vision. Number one, he's thinking about things. Number two, he's watching the vision itself. And number three, he's trying to understand it. Now, as Daniel did not just wake up in the morning one day and say, oh, this is an interesting vision. Maybe it's from God. Like, he didn't have a random vision. No, Jesus, I mean, Daniel has been spending time reflecting or thinking about the things of God. He's been searching God with his whole heart. He's been watching for God to act. He's been attempting to understand what is happening. Jesus, uh, Daniel is living out this lifestyle of thinking, of watching, and of trying to understand what God is doing. Right? Daniel is in the process of what Jeremiah encouraged the exiles to do, which is to search for God, to search for God with their whole heart. Right? So, what are we supposed to do with this vision? What are we supposed to do? Well, I think I'd like to connect it to Lent for you. Lent, for if you know, Ash Wednesday was on when uh, was on Wednesday. Wow, is that revolutionary? Ash Wednesday is on Wednesday, but, but here's the thing: Lent is the 40 days before Easter, including Sundays, and it is a time when you and I fast, and we fast something so that we can replace that time with a time of thinking, watching, and understanding. Right? One of the things that I needed when Sue and I were dating, and she was my everything, and I was searching her out and her making her my idol, was I needed to have a jump start in my life. I needed to be reoriented. right? And so what Lent serves for us is that same idea. Lent is a time when God is trying to through the church, to reorient you. So if you give up watching TV, don't read a book, right? Unless it's scripture. You're, if you're giving up watching TV, during that time that you would watch TV, think, watch, and attempt to understand what God is doing. If you're giving up, you know, eating chocolate, which is a popular one, right, for, for people in Lent, like, it's not just the time that it takes you to eat a candy bar but every time you begin to think of chocolate you should take some time to think ponder the things of god and that you should watch for what god is doing and try to understand 
Okay. So how does, what does that have to do with this passage? Other than this is what Daniel did. The question when we come to this passage then is, well, what are we supposed to get out of this? What are you and I, as people who are sojourners in exile, supposed to get out of it? Well, number one, what's really clear in all of this is that God is in control and God knows exactly what's going to happen. And powers, no matter how violent and how arrogant, cannot stop God. Right? That's, that's number one. It should be an encouragement to you. But in the context of, of, of reflecting on this chapter, I want to just give you some tools to think about how you might, or to actually practice reflecting on this chapter or any other chapter. So the question I want you to answer when you read a passage like Daniel chapter 8 is, what is it that I need to know? You should ask this from every single piece of Scripture. What do I need to know? Because this is how you think about Scripture. This is how you reflect on the things of God. What do I need to know? It's not, what is the 17 things I need to know? It is, the what is the one thing I need to know? What's the one thing I need to know? I would argue today in front of you, the one thing you need to know is that power is destructive. And that power dominates and that power can consume you and it is very easy to be seduced by it. Right? And that leads us into our second question. Why do I need to know it? Right? So power is seductive. Why do I need to know it? Because power is seductive. Like the reason I need to know this is because I need to be on my guard. Right? I need to be in a place where I can watch, where I'm alert to what's happening. So the reflection that I would encourage you in Lent first is to say, what do I need to know about this passage, about what God is telling me, and why do I need to know it? But there's a second thing, or third thing in this that you need to kind of reflect on, and that is, what do I need to do? You cannot come to Scripture and say, what do I need to know, and why do I need to know it? You have to come to Scripture and say, what do I need to do? Because Christianity is a doing faith. There are things to do. We don't get to just gaze at our navels and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Right? This is, this is a faith of action. Right? And so the question is, what do I need to do? Well, this passage is very clear when we look at Daniel that what we need to do is that we need to think about things. We need to watch things, watch what God is doing. We need to attempt to understand it. But there's another little clue in this. When Daniel faces the angel, he is face down. He's terrified. There, there's also, uh, we need to be people who are in the stance of worship, right? So we need to be people who are thinking about what God is doing and reflecting on things. We need to be people who are watching for what God is doing. We need to be people who are understanding things or trying to reflect on things. But we also need to be a people who are willing to orient ourselves to God, to be face down, to honor God for who he is, the ancient of days who sits on the throne. Right? We, we, need to, we need to honor that. So if we have, what do I need to know? Why do I need to do it? What do I need to do? The question is, why do I need to do it? Right? Why do I need to do it? Here's a simple reason why you need to do it. Because if you don't do it, it goes back up to the other answer. Power will seduce you. You will find another object to worship. You are a worshiping being. That's what you were created to do. And if you are not oriented towards God, you will orient yourself towards something else. 
and you will worship it. It might be a girl. It might be a boy. It might be a KitchenAid mixer, right? It might be your children. It might be your grandchildren. It might be the things that you create. It might be the adventures that you imagine. It might be your skill that you've honed and you've practiced in your knowledge, right? If you don't think and you don't watch and you don't understand, you will find yourself worshiping something else. You'll find yourself worshiping something else. Now, I want to illustrate this just a little bit better. Um, So I want to jump to Hebrews really quickly. Um, I think Hebrews draws a beautiful, the writer of Hebrews draws a beautiful picture of this. In chapter 1, he draws a picture of Jesus with whom we are supposed to be oriented towards. The one we're supposed to ponder and understand and watch. It says, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Talking about Jesus. Jesus, who holds all things together, who spoke all things into creation, who died for your sins. Like, this is what the, the writer is lifting up. And then in chapter 2, he says this, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The only way that you can hear anything is for you to think and watch and ponder. The picture here is the idea of an owner of a boat. He lightly ties his boat to Jesus, right, to the the post. And he goes to bed. And in the morning, he comes out and the, the tide has come in and gone out and come in and gone out. And he comes looking for his boat and his boat is gone because it's drifted away. And and my argument to you is is if you don't jump into Lent and don't jump into focusing on the celebration of Easter and moving towards God and orienting yourself towards God, if you're not going to take thinking seriously on the things of God, if you're not going to take watching the things of God seriously or understanding God, you will drift away. Your heart will drift away. You will come out looking for Jesus and he won't be there in a way because you have drifted away. If you go back to Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14, it says not God is going to run after you. Yes, he does seek you, but it's that you will seek him. And when you seek him with all of your heart, you'll be found by him, and you will be delivered from captivity. And to be honest with you, in my relationship with Susan when we were dating, I needed her to say I can't be your God because I needed to remove myself from her captivity. I needed to latch myself onto Jesus because there was no way I could love her in any kind of way that was effective unless I had my rope tied real tight to Jesus. Right? Well, that's why I love the church calendar. 
That's why I love Lent is because it's a moment where we all say, yeah, it's easy to drift. We're saying it as a community. So let's tie ourselves to Jesus. Let's be a people who are willing to think on the things of God. Let's be a people who are willing to watch for what God is doing. Let's be a people who are willing to ponder it. Because I guarantee you, if we head that way, you will have some visions of goats and rams. You'll have some weird visions. You'll have some clarity. You'll have God speaking because you'll be found by him. And he will speak to you. And he will transform you. And you'll find peace. It's really interesting that Daniel, and under this, that Daniel was so overwhelmed. So know that when you encounter God, you might get sick. You might get the flu. You know, like it's, it may happen to you. Like he, he was so ill by what God decided to offer him. The vision of what's to come was overwhelming. But he, once he's well, he stands up, and what does he do? He goes about the king's business. He goes and lives his life in the world where all the powers are with a confidence that God is good and that God will act in God's time. Right? So, I'm pretty sure because of, oh goodness, I know we started late, but I went really late. Okay, I could continue talking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much um, for today, for this wonderful community, and I just ask that you would bless our time together. Amen.